He is the name above all names. He is the Lamb of God. He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. And that's who we worship this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand with me one more time. I know you've been up and down a lot this morning, but I would like for you to stand with me one more time as I read our text for this morning. I'm going to be reading out of Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 21, reading down through this section that ends in verse 32. Mark chapter 15. Mark writes, and he says this, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexandra and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So all the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray again. Father, it's the most horrific and yet the most beautiful story ever told. It's one of those stories, God, that as we read about it and as we think about it and hear about it, it brings to mind how far the human heart can go and how gruesome we can actually be. And yet at the same time, it shows how far your heart can go in terms of its compassion and love and mercy toward those who would crucify your very son. Father, this morning we thank you for the cross, recognizing that both justice and love kiss at the cross. So we thank you for that. I pray you'd help me this morning as I teach this. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Isn't it amazing, if you think about it, how our worlds can change in just 24 hours? Think about this for just a moment. For those of you who are parents, when you held up that pregnancy test and the little cross appeared, the little lines crossed, and you realized for the very first time that you're going to be parents. Yesterday was normal. Today, your world is completely different. You have a whole new set of things that you're looking forward to. It's sheer joy. It's the time to go buy clothes. It's the time to get excited. 24 hours changed. What about those who have experienced the trauma of getting the news that a loved one was killed in a car accident? 
Yesterday was normal. And today, the world is turned upside down. Completely different. Sorrow, tears, funeral homes. Or what about that person who goes to the doctor, they have that nagging headache, and the doctor walks in and he says, I am so, so sorry, but you have cancer. And what went from a routine yesterday has today rocked our world. Completely different. It is amazing to me how things can change in 24 hours. It doesn't seem like much. From the rising of the sun to the setting down, how many things can change? From looking at that calendar on the refrigerator and making that little X across today, 24 hours, how things can change and how our lives can be turned upside down in such a short amount of time. It's, it's almost indescribable, the things that can happen in that amount of time. Today, I would like to look at 24 hours that literally rocked this world. The earth shook. In 24 hours, the most monumental event that ever took place in the history of man, if you miss it, you will regret it for the rest of eternity. It was a day that saw dead people come out of the graves. It was a day that saw darkness cover the earth for a period of time. It was a day that the curtain in the temple of of God where the Holy of Holies existed, was ripped in half. It was a day that will be commemorated for the rest of time by a cross like the one that hangs behind me today. It was a day that in many ways separates the Bible that you have in your hands between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was a monumental, most significant event, not only in the life of Christ, but in the life of the world, in the life of every believer. Words often fail to be able to describe what this day was like and what this day means for you and I, but we're going to try it. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at this 24 hours in which our Lord and our Master died. It was a day that started out, for most people that day, a very normal day. And truth be told, that day ended for most people as a very normal day. And yet for you and I, it was a day of extraordinary significance. It was a day that was profound. It was a day that's like no other day in all of history. And Mark captures this day and the events leading up to this day in his short gospel. This is what we want to study as we go through here. I was struck as I, as I studied through Mark chapter 15 and 16, most studiously these last few weeks, and the characters that Mark brings into the story. And I noticed something for the very first time. I'd never noticed this before. It was always there. It's nothing new. I had just never seen it before. But it was the progression that happens in chapters 15 and 16 and it, with the characters in the story. And, and those are kind of what we're going to be looking at. In the text that we see this morning, we're going to notice that there was a significant amount of unbelief that Mark captures in the life of the scribes and the chief priests. Next week, Lord willing, as we look further into chapter 15, 
Mark introduces another character into the story, the Roman centurion, and he progresses from unbelief into this idea of belief. He believes in the Son of God. After that, Mark brings in Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph not only believed, but he begins to step out in his belief in an act of courage when he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Christ. And then finally, on Easter Sunday morning, on our second service there, we're going to look at the women that are standing around the tomb. And not only do they believe, and not only do they have courage to come to the tomb, but they are the first ones that Jesus tells, the angel instructs, to go and witness. Go and tell others that I'm alive. And so you see this progression in this book of Mark from unbelief to belief to courage and then on to witnessing to the rest of the world. So it's, it's really neat, and it's beautiful. Mark is going to zone in on Jesus Christ and his death, and that's where we're going to major. This, this story is about Jesus Christ, but we're going to bring these other characters along because they show us the effect of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. We can't miss it. These other characters begin to bring the story to life, so we want to spend a little bit of time there as well. Now, before we dig into Mark 15 in any detail, let me ask you a couple questions to get us thinking. What was Jesus' mission on earth? If you had to give his mission on earth in one sentence, what would you say it is? Well, Luke records it for us, and Jesus himself says in Luke 19, he says, "...for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost." That was his goal. That's why he came to earth. In John 3, Jesus said it like this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what was Jesus' goal? Why did he come to earth? Well, Jesus came to earth to die for a sinful people. People who are just like you and me. People who have rebelled against the very God who created them. I read recently that the most offensive verse in all of the Bible is Genesis 1-1. And it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that is the most offensive verse because if God created, then God owns. And if God created and God owns, then God gets to set the rules. God gets to tell us what's right and what's wrong. And here's the deal. You and I don't like that very much because you and I like to set the rules. You and I like to say what's right and what's wrong. And so we have a tendency to say, well, I'm just going to push that truth away. I'm going to suppress that truth. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. We turn our heads away. We don't want to see the truth. Let me give you an example of how this works uh, just on a lesser scale. How many of you in the morning get up and in your bathroom you have a scales there and you step on the scales and the number that the scales gives back to you is not the number you like? (laughs) It's not what you wanted it to tell you. And so what do you do if you're like me? 
you take the scales and you sort of kick it back in the corner and you don't look at it again for a while. I don't like it. I don't like what it tells me. And so I'm just going to put it away for a while. It's too depressing. Maybe if I don't see it, maybe if I don't know that it's there, maybe I won't have to think about it. Maybe I won't have to be convicted about it. It won't bug my conscience. That's called suppressing the truth. The truth is there. It'll tell you. It'll reveal itself to you if you want to read it. But we suppress it. We put it away. Now that happens on a larger moral scale. Let me give you some other examples. I don't like what God has to say to me about my anger, so I'm going to ignore that reality in my life. I'm going to suppress that truth that God has to say to me about my anger because I don't want to deal with it. I don't like what you have to say to me, God, about my sexual problems So I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to pretend like I don't hear you. I I don't know that you're there. I don't like what you have to say to me, God, about my addiction. So when I get to those verses in the Bible that talk about drunkenness or talking about my dependence upon things other than God, I'm just going to I'm just going to sort of glaze over that and, and, and pretend like that doesn't exist. It's called suppressing the truth. I don't like what you have to say to me, God, about how I treat my wife. So whenever I arrive at passages like Ephesians 5, I'm just going to go on with life as though those things don't exist. In the end, we become what others have called practical atheists. In other words, we say we believe in God. We, our, our mouth says that we believe in God. But if you would follow me around, I don't live like it. I, I don't display any kind of evidence that God has authority in my life. I live as though I'm an atheist, even though I would confess that, that God has authority in my life. It is people like that. It is people like you. It is people like me that Jesus came to seek and to save. And he demonstrates his authority throughout Scripture. His kingship is never denied throughout Scripture. Any spectator that saw Jesus at any point in his earthly ministry, his, his three years of his earthly ministry, could not have denied the reality that this man has some kind of authority to speak truth in my life. And so as Jesus spoke and as Jesus did all of his miraculous things, the only way not to believe in him would be to suppress the truth, to pretend like he didn't exist. Because if you acknowledge that he exists, you're forced to make a decision. Do I believe in him or do I not? But if I can just pretend like he isn't there, then life will go on as well. I want to consider a few of these before we get into Mark because it helps us to understand why Mark's characters do what they do. Keep your finger there in Mark chapter 15 and turn with me back to the first chapter of Mark. Mark chapter 1. And we'll, we'll look at a couple of events from the life of Jesus that would prove to any person watching that he is the Son of God, that he has the authority to speak truth. Okay, Mark chapter 1. Look at verse 21. 
Mark says this, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there in their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It was a demon speaking. And Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And everyone standing there was amazed. And they began questioning among themselves, saying, What is this? It's a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding regions of Galilee. They were amazed. They all saw it. They knew this man had an unclean spirit. They witnessed the fact that with a few short words, Jesus could speak and that spirit came out of the man and it was gone. Jesus clearly had authority over the spiritual realm that had invaded humanity. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, they knew it. Now, turn over to Mark chapter 2. We see another one. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. He returned to Capernaum after some days. It was reported he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, Jesus was. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they went up and removed the roof above Jesus And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise take up your bed and go home and the man rose he immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were again amazed and they glorified God saying we never saw anything like this the scribes were there the people were there And just to make sure that they understood that he had the authority to forgive sins, Jesus did what no other man could do, and that was he ordered the man to stand up, he gave him healing in his legs, and the man walked out, demonstrating that not only could Jesus forgive sin, but he also had authority over the physical realm in which humanity suffered. 
This was the man, this was the son of God who had authority over the spiritual realm. He commanded the unclean spirit to come out. And now he has authority over the physical realm, everything on earth. There's another one. Next chapter, Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Mark's full of them over and over and over again. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to, him, said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And his hand was restored. There they were, looking on. Jesus was superior over tradition. Jesus was superior over man's interpretation of what was right and wrong on the Sabbath day. Jesus answered to no one but his Father. And guess what? They hated him for it. They hated him. They despised him. Look at the next verse, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how they were going to destroy him. Why? Because they couldn't stop him. Everything he did demonstrated that he was in fact the Messiah. They could not deny what was happening right before their eyes. Clearly, this man was different. Clearly, this man had some kind of power and authority that they never had. He was the greatest prophet they had ever seen, superior even to their hero, Moses. This Jesus was somebody that had to be reckoned with. This Jesus forced a fork in the road. Either you believe him or you don't. Either you believe him or you deny him. Either you believe him or you reject him. But you couldn't just pretend like there was nothing there. His miraculous powers confirmed his message, I am the Son of God. You must believe in me if you ever want to see the Father. And those kinds of words infuriated the Pharisees. And just to be clear, that they understood the significance of the life of Jesus, John records this for us in John chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Todd read for us this morning. Listen to what, what John records. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now listen to what the chief priests and the Pharisees say. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered at the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They couldn't deny it. It was there. There was no way they could skirt around the issue that this man was performing many signs. The question is this. Why didn't it equate to belief 
for the Pharisees. Why did they refuse to believe? Well, the next verse in John 11 tells us, hear this. This is the Pharisees speaking. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Ah, the truth comes out. If we believe in Jesus, then we believe he's going to take away all the things that we hold dear. If we believe in Jesus, then he will be king and we won't. If we believe in Jesus, then we will have nothing and he will have everything. And we can't have that, the Pharisees say. So what are we going to do? We're going to kill him. We're going to suppress the truth. We're going to get rid of him. If we silence him, then we won't have to think about him anymore. He won't be around. He won't be this fly that just sort of buds us to death. And so the plot was birthed. And with sinister detail, they carry it out. The Pharisees get their wish. With the inside help of Judas Iscariot, they're able to capture Jesus. They're able to rush through this mock trial in the middle of the night with Caiaphas. They're able to twist Pilate's arm with the threat of political annihilation. They had their man. They took full authority of all the authority that Pilate gave them to kill this man. Jesus has been beaten until his flesh is ripped open. The Bible says he's barely recognizable as a man. Ribs are exposed. Tendons are torn. A crown of thorns is jammed into his skull with such intensity they penetrate into his cranium. They throw a purple robe on his back, leave it there long enough to mock him, Leave it there long enough for the blood to sort of soak in and fuse with this robe, and then they rip it off, exposing all of the scars again, all of the blood gushing forth again. He's been slapped. He's been kicked. The hair's been torn out of his head. And now a hundred-plus pound cross has been slammed down on his back as he hears the orders to begin marching to Golgotha. His ears are ringing from being slammed in the head. No doubt blood is dripping down through his eyes as he struggles to see the path where he's even supposed to walk to Golgotha. As his legs drag one after the other, his lungs are screaming for oxygen. And when he goes as far as he can go, His physical body just quits. And he collapses right there in the dirt, the cross crushing down on his back. And that's where Mark picks up this story in Mark chapter 15. Mark says this, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country to carry the cross. Here comes Simon. It was an ordinary 24 hours. It was a normal day for him. And all of a sudden, he finds himself squarely in the middle of this awful scene. 
Tradition says that Simon became a believer because of what he saw that day and because of having to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 22. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he didn't take it. This wine that they mixed with myrrh was meant to numb the pain. It was meant so the criminal didn't hurt so bad. Now, was that an act of compassion on behalf of the Roman soldiers? Hardly. The only reason they gave him this wine mixed with myrrh so that they'd be half intoxicated and they wouldn't fight so bad when they went to crucify them. So they wouldn't struggle so much when they ripped their arms out of joint to get it far enough apart to nail the nails in. This is no act of compassion. This is to make their job easier. Jesus refused to take it. Jesus wanted every faculty of his body to feel every bit of the intense pain, the most grimacing moment that was to come. He didn't want any of that dulled. Mark 15, verse 24. Mark goes on to simply record these words. And they crucified him. That's it. Marvelous restraint as Mark writes those words. And they crucified him. That's it. That's like the writer of Genesis when he says, God created the stars. There are billions of stars. There are millions of galaxies. There are stars of every shape and color. It is brilliant. There is space that will never be explored for all of our lifetime. And all the writer said was, God created the stars for all of the magnificence, for all of the ages of preparation that have come to this moment, for all of the worth and value and Masonic prophecy that's fulfilled. In this moment, Mark writes four words, and they crucified him. Mark's Roman readers needed no elaboration, and he offered them none. They crucified him. Into verse 24. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide who should take them. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Now, Pilate wrote that. Pilate wrote the King of the Jews because he hated the Jews. Pilate was keenly aware that the Jews had just won a victory over him, and he despised them for it. They forced his hand in such a way that it was either Jesus or his own neck, and he wasn't willing to die that day, so he gave them Jesus. And so this is his attempt, this inscription above the cross is Pilate's attempt to mock them. By this inscription, he is saying, 
here hangs the king of the Jews, the only king that they'll ever be able to produce, and by their own bidding, they want to die. Ha! What a king. The Jews hated that inscription. They wanted it taken down. Pilate refused. In fact, he had it printed in three languages. So everybody coming through there that day would see the message and would feel some kind of spite toward the Jews. To further denigrate the Jews, Pilate had Jesus hung between two robbers. It was as though he wanted to say, you conniving backstabbers, your man is nothing more than a common criminal. And there he hangs. All the while that this turf war is going on between the Jews and Pilate, there hangs Jesus, bleeding and dying. Look at verse 29. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. The temple where they worshiped took 46 years to build. And Jesus supposedly claimed that he could tear it all down and rebuild it in three days. Ludicrous, they thought. Of course, they misunderstood Jesus. He wasn't talking about that stack of stones inside the city walls. He was talking about his body. You kill this body, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. That's what Jesus meant. But they didn't get it. They were laughing. They were mocking. And who should appear on the scene? None other than the scribes and the chief priests. Those who throughout the entire book of Mark have witnessed time after time after time Jesus giving them signs so that they would believe. And look what they say in verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another. They didn't even give Jesus the privilege of mocking him to his face. They wouldn't even look at him. They just mocked him one to another made fun of him so he could hear, but they were just talking to each other. And look what they said. He saved others, and he cannot save himself. And this next verse gives them away. Look what they say. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. Why? That we may see and believe. Hmm. If they hadn't seen and believed to this point, there was nothing else Jesus could do. They didn't want to see and believe. They wanted him to die and go away. They didn't want to see and believe. They wanted to suppress the truth so that no one would have to see this man that was there. Did they want to believe? Never. And yet, ironically... Ironically, their words express a profound spiritual truth. If Jesus was to save others, 
delivering others from sin, then he could not save himself from suffering and death at the hands of God. The only way Jesus could save the human race was to not save himself. The only way Jesus could save you and I was to hang on a cross and die. It was the very means by which you and I can enter into the presence of the Father. What was Jesus' goal? It was to seek and save the lost. What was their goal? To suppress the truth, to get rid of the truth. Why? Because it was too convicting. It was too challenging. It challenged their power. It challenged their authority. It challenged their self-determination. It challenged their self-righteousness. And here's the deal. If you can't deny the truth and you're unwilling to bow to the truth, then the only option left is to suppress the truth, to put it away from you. That's the issue at hand. It's not lack of evidence. It's hearts pregnant with unbelief. Here's the question that Mark forces us to wrestle with. Will you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Will you repent of your sins and confess him as Lord? Well, my gossip really isn't as bad as you think it is. Yes, it is. It's worse. James says that your tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Well, my lusting after that girl isn't hurting anyone. Yes, it is. You are defiling her mentally in the very presence of the God who created her. Well, my fudging on my tax return isn't that big of a deal. The government has all it needs. Friend, would you defy the very command of God to pay your taxes under the submission of the government he ordained over you? See, here's in our nature. We like to suppress the truth. And when it hurts, and when it convicts, and when it gets real personal and kind of up in our face, that's when we don't like it. That's when we kind of start doing one of these things. Because we don't want the word of God right close to us. That's for somebody else. We don't want to have to believe the word of God when it hurts us. That's for somebody else. But here's the truth, friend. You and I are guilty. We're guilty. We stand before this Jesus who's hanging on the cross and he and he alone is the only solution to the problem that we have in our heart. Not only will he free us from the condemnation of our sin if we'll believe in him, but he'll free us from the dominion of sin. We don't have to do sin anymore if we believe in him. But we must believe. We must believe. We must believe that we have been rocked by sin and that we have no solution in and of ourselves. We have to look outside of ourselves and there's Jesus dying for you, dying for me. He did something you and I could never do. He walked on this earth perfect. We must believe that he was the son of God. We must believe that he really did die on the cross. We must believe that there he suffered the wrath of God for you. 
for me. We must believe that he raised up from the dead three days later. We must believe that he died for our tongue, that he died for our sinful sexual appetites, that he died for our lying, that he died for our cheating. We must believe that we deserved it and he died for it. He was our substitute. We must believe. We must repent of our sin and be saved. Friend, don't be like the scribes and Pharisees. They saw Jesus time after time after time right before their eyes and they rejected him. Don't suppress the truth. Don't try to act like it doesn't exist. Don't try to act like the Bible isn't real. It's true. It's there. It's convicting. But it gives you freedom. It gives you hope. It gives you love that you've never had before if you believe in Jesus Christ. Why do that? Why believe? Because here's the deal. You don't know what's going to happen to you in the next 24 hours. You don't know if today is going to be a normal day for you and tomorrow is going to rock your world. You have no idea. If you were to die today and stand before the very face of God, would you shout with joy or would you shudder with fear? Joshua says, Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. God, you are our maker. You are the creator of our souls. You are the creator of heaven and earth. And because you are the creator... You own us. We can either choose to believe that or we can choose to reject that. But your word tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some knees will bow willingly. Some knees will be thankful. Some knees will be wonderfully glad to confess you as Lord. And other knees will bow. Oh, they'll bow. But very grudgingly, very unwillingly, and as they confess, yes, indeed, you are Lord, they will find themselves cast into the lake of fire forever, for they rejected you when they had the chance to believe. Man has appointed for him one time to live and then die. So I pray, Father, that today we would choose you, that we would choose to believe that your Son is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, that he rose again. We confess him with our mouth. We believe that in our heart. We will be saved. Father, help us to choose Yes.